This is your EE Times Weekly Briefing. Today is Friday, March 8th, and these are the top stories this week. Dylan McGrath was in San Francisco this week to cover RSA Conference. Here's Dylan's summary of why cryptographers see dangers in Australia's controversial Access Assistance Bill. This week I had the opportunity to attend the annual cryptographers panel at the RSA Conference in San Francisco. And one of the things that I found most interesting about this discussion was something called Australia's Access Assistance Bill, which I had heard of and read a little bit about, was not very familiar with. This is something that the cryptographers are alarmed about, and that is because this law, it was signed into law in December, requires that any electronics vendor that's selling devices in Australia have a mechanism to be able to comply with law enforcement requests to access the data on a user's device, smartphone or other device, and uh, turn it over to law enforcement when requested. This would presumably be someone, a user that is suspected of some type of criminal behavior. The alarming thing about this is in order to do this, the cryptographers that do the encryption would have to leave a backdoor in the encryption technology of these devices to allow the company to, to find a way to get its access to the data and turn it over. And, uh, you know, what really concerns these cryptographers is that any backdoor that's left into a device like that is bound to be found. It's inevitable that it will be found and exploited by not law enforcement, but people, bad guys bent on nefarious purposes. So this is something that at a time when safety and data privacy has become so paramount in our society, there's a strong feeling that this kind of flies in the face of that and is actually counterproductive. Dylan McGrath, EE Times. Junko Yoshida caught up with Intel fellow Ricardo Mariani to dig up what's going on with a newly emerging automotive safety standard called Safety of the Intended Functionality, or SODIF for short. We asked Junko to explain SOTIF. SOTIF is picking up where the well-known functional safety standard ISO 26262 left off. Why is this important? It's because we've all seen in Uber and Tesla fatalities in uh, recent months that even if a highly automated vehicle comes with perfectly functioning ISO 26262 compliant hardware and software, it could still fail in some instances. Triggering autonomous vehicles to fail could be a number of reasons. They include performance limitations of sensors or systems, unexpected changes in the road environment, or the foreseeable misuse of the functions by the driver, or simply Machine learning algorithm might not interpret reality correctly. SOTIF, which is still in development, is trying to address that gap. This is Junko Yoshida, EE Times. Rick Merritt, our Silicon Valley Bureau Chief, was in Portland this week. Rick has been exploring issues of data center slowdown. This can be a significant issue, he says, because cloud has been a big driver for the electronics industry for some time. Here's Rick's take. In their last quarterly earnings, we heard from both Intel and NVIDIA that uh, the data center business was down. And the story at the time was that's uh, a temporary blip. But uh, we were really concerned because 
cloud computing has been one of the big growth areas for the electronics industry. And as the smartphone starts to slow down and IoT is clearly not going to take off as quickly as people had hoped, uh, if the cloud goes slow, that's a real significant. So we've been asking analysts and, and uh, vendors in the data center area. We get a couple of answers. One is that, you know, the law of large numbers is, is taking place here. I mean, Amazon, Google, Facebook, and so forth have been building data centers at a breakneck pace for several years, and that just can't continue. Eventually, the growth has to slow down, uh, although the market continues to be large and growing. And we also hear that, to some extent, this is a quarterly or a, a couple quarters of a blip of the downturn, and they vendors still do expect second half of the year we'll see good growth in servers and switches and all that good infrastructure business. One anecdote that we heard, which was really interesting, is that one of the top seven hyperscalers still has 81 empty shells that they hope to facilitate over the next 18 months. So that alone is, is a pretty big chunk of business. And there is a second tier of smaller, more focused uh, data center companies who might be, you know, focused on just a national business or just a, a market segment. And they're coming up pretty good, too. Thirdly, there is uh, been for some time now all this talk about edge networks, a kind of another tier of the Internet uh, that AT&T in particular has been very vocal about the need to build out and the plan to build out. It's a big collection of small data centers. Some may be as small as a, a coat closet that put a, a few servers and switches closer to metro areas so that you can have better response. It's also a place where there can be more peering, where the Netflix content can talk to the AT&T network and so forth. Uh, that needs to happen at this new tier that people think will be built. Now, so far, this is all PowerPoint. It's called, you know, the Telco Edge Network, and nobody has actually built anything. But I keep asking people and I keep hearing, well, you know, we, we think this is going to happen at some level, but we're not sure how or why or what kind of systems they're going to need. So that's probably the long-term growth prospect. So, uh, you know, in short, the data center is down um, and it will slow, uh, but there's a lot of life left there. This is Rick Merritt in Silicon Valley for EE Times. And now Junko went to Brussels Tuesday to cover the Huawei event and explains for us what it was all about. Meanwhile, Junko asks Bolaji Ojo for his take on the latest development of Huawei versus the U.S. Here's more on that. I hop on a train from Paris to Brussels Tuesday so that I can cover Huawei's grand opening of Cybersecurity Transparency Center. Reporters like myself know this is Huawei's big dog and pony show. But we also know we'd have to be there. First, to hear Huawei's side of the story. Second, to capture the mood and detect if there are any signs of changes in Huawei's strategy. Bola, you asked me if it was worth going there. And I must say, yes, it was. There I saw Huawei's growing confidence in winning the argument in the court of public opinion. According to their logic, if the United States can't prove its allegations against Huawei with verifiable facts, well, none of Huawei's past wrongdoings, all alleged by the United States, has ever happened. That's Huawei's logic. Huawei's rotating chairman, Ken Hu, stressed in his opening remarks in Brussels, quote, both trust and distrust 
should be based on facts, not feelings, not speculation, and not baseless rumor. We believe that facts must be verifiable. Unquote. By repeatedly using the word verifiable, Chinese are essentially telling the United States if China did anything wrong, first, prove it. The best line, which I thought succinctly captured Huawei's state of mind, came from Huawei's Chinese employee who happened to share a table with me during a buffet lunch in Brussels. She told me that all this press about Huawei, good or bad, in recent months, is the best thing that has ever happened to Huawei. Why? It's because now everybody in the whole world knows Huawei brand, she said. You know, that's really a good point. The message I got in Brussels was this. Huawei will fight to its end, and Chinese thinks they will win. So, Bola, you and I have been discussing Huawei matters for a while now, online, offline. Things got escalated further yesterday by Huawei filing a complaint in a federal court in Texas against the United States that Chinese company had been unfairly and incorrectly banned as a security threat. Tell me your take. Huawei is certainly right about one thing, uh, Junko, and that's that everyone is talking about this company right now. Everybody. The press, uh, the mainstream press, the trade media, and not just talking. You know, we're also visiting them. And Huawei is going on the offensive now. They've lined up uh, a battery of people from what uh, we've gathered so far. They've lined up a lot of people to, you know, to to make their case, to present their case. But they're not presenting their case not just to uh, the U.S. government. Uh, they are now presenting their case to the to the globe. You know, everybody globally, anybody, governments globally, consumers, anyone that has any interest at all in what's happening in the networking and communication world. Huawei is taking the, the case out there. But it's also doing one more thing. It's forcing, you know, the antagonist, in this case, the U.S. government, to present its own case. So this is not a situation where the U.S. government can just say, you know what, well, we believe you're doing something wrong. Huawei is now saying, well, prove it. Shows presents the evidence, but they're not, you know, by going to court, they're not just they're saying, well, we don't want you to just present the evidence to us in our boardroom, okay? We want you to present that evidence to the rest of the world. Now, why would why we take such a step? I think in some ways they now realize that maybe they are really or truly on their own, that the Chinese government, as at this point in time, does not have the capacity or the interest to go all out and defend one single company. Very, very simple. China and the Chinese government is now involved in detailed and expansive trade talks with the United States. That is the focus of the Chinese government right now. They need to solve a wide array of issues with the U.S. government. Okay, now that's not the right time for China to go and defend a single company, no matter the relationship that they may have. So that's probably forced Huawei to, to realize that, you know what, we need to do something different. And what are they doing differently, Junko? They're copying all of the tactics that a Microsoft or a Google will use, which is educate the public, take the case to uh, regulators, and if all else fail, you know, go to court and force, you know, your accuser to present the evidence. Now, how is that going to play out, really? 
in my opinion, and I'm not a lawyer, so I'll just be upfront about that. I still believe, though, that you know the Huawei, Huawei is probably going to lose in U.S. court. It's very unlikely that an American court will say, you know what, uh, the U.S. government cannot take steps that it believes are necessary to protect, you know, for, for national security. National security is such a broad umbrella. You can put anything and hide it under it. And the, the U.S. courts have always kind of given the president, you know, you know, that sense of, you know, what I know what I'm doing and I need to take these steps. So it's likely that Huawei is going to lose in that. But the U.S. government is also not going to be able to present the kind of evidence that Huawei is asking. How is, are you going to do that? How are you going to show that there's a backdoor? You know, you have to take the equipment to court and then demonstrate that it's a backdoor. That's one. Or two, force companies that compete against Huawei to show that there's a backdoor. Or are you going to present evidence that should when Chinese government officials and Huawei executives are in a meeting where, you know, the, the China is telling them you need to do such and such and such or go and install backdoors in your equipment. I don't think that's that's available. That kind of information is not available. And the U.S. government is not going to present it in any case, Junko, because it will be forced to disclose how it got that kind of information. So that's that's a no-no. Now, why then would Huawei do this? If the company realizes that it may still lose in U.S. courts, I think they're taking this step because, you know, the case that they're trying to make is not just in the United States. The case they're trying to make is a global one. And they are going out to the rest of the world to kind of say, you know what, the U.S. government is accusing us of all of these things, but they are not giving us any evidence and they are not willing to show to the rest of the world, you know, here is how we came to this conclusion. So while we may lose in the U.S. court, but it will probably win the case on a PR basis globally. And here's the reality. The U.S. market is already closed to Huawei. The company decided to go on the offense because the U.S. now decided to shut out Huawei from you know, markets in Europe, in, the, in, other Asian, in other Asian countries, and in Africa and in South America. That would have killed the company. So they needed to take this step. Now, we'll see whether the rest of the world is going to accept it and believe it. But at least what they're doing now is to make sure that the globe understands what it's up against. From Bern, Switzerland, Bolaji Ojo for the Aspen Core Media Network. This has been your weekly briefing from EE Times and the Aspen Core Global Service. Thanks for listening.